For years, Minky Couture has been donating blankets to NICUs across the country. Owner Sandy Henry's grandson was born at 30 weeks, and she placed a mini blanket in her grandson's incubator. We want to help other NICU families with the Heart of Minky program. For every adult-sized blanket purchased, Minky Couture will donate a mini-sized blanket to NICUs across the nation. Thanks to you, we can fulfill our dream to blanket the world. Welcome to the Stranded Technologies podcast. I'm your host and founder of Infinita Fund, Nicholas Anzinger. In this show, we talk about how to accelerate the future. Our thesis is that many life-improving technologies are held back by institutional barriers. How can we unblock vast opportunities while mitigating against the risks? What ethical principles, rules, and regulations can guide us on that path? We will discuss these questions with entrepreneurs, policymakers, and industry experts. If you enjoy the show, please give us five stars and visit us at infinitafund.com to join the community. Today is October the 18th in 2022, and my guest is Jay Stores Hall, also known as Josh. Josh is an independent researcher and author. He was the founding chief scientist of NanoRex, which is developing a CAD system for nanomechanical engineering. His research interests include molecular nanotechnology and the design of useful macroscopic machines using the capabilities of molecular manufacturing. His background is in computer science, particular parallel processor architectures, artificial intelligence. And Josh wrote an epic book called Where is My Flying Car? A memoir of future past. So this book will be the main topic of today's conversation. Josh might be the most requested guest for my show. I, I am based in the startup city of Prospera, and the book has a fan base here. It's all about what we want to fix. Weirdly enough, the book is basically the epitome of what I call stranded technologies on this podcast. But I didn't know about the book before I formulated the thesis. So when Trey here gave it to me, I read it and was like, wow, this is it goes even deeper and further than I originally thought. So Josh is probably the world's foremost expert on stranded technologies. In fact, I could as well just stop the podcast and read excerpts from the book. So I couldn't be more <laughs> excited to have this conversation. Josh, welcome to the show. Why, thank you very much. We're also joined by Trey Goff. Trey is the CMO of Prospera, the startup city in Honduras. Trey was the one who originally recommended the book to me, and I also had a conversation with him on episode nine of this podcast. Trey, welcome to the show. Thank you so much, Nicholas. It is an honor to be here. Um, as I was saying off air previously, I think this is my uh, favorite book of all time, and it's definitely my most often gifted book to friends. When they ask me what my ideology is, it's just this book. Well, this, this, is, this is something new for me. I, I'd never realized I was an ideology creator. I, I feel what you mean. Josh, besides what I said, what would you like listeners to know about you and your work? Um, well, I covered quite a bit of it. Um, this is actually my third book. Um, I wrote a book about uh, nanotechnology, and I wrote a book about robotics and AI. The robotics and AI book actually appeared to uh, turn into what is now a, a, a smallish uh, academic field, the field of AI alignment or AI safety. When I was uh, working in AI over most of the latter part of the 20th century, I understood that, that one of the hardest things for the people then working to get right was 
the ability of the machine to use language. And one of the major advances, if you can think of philo philosophy as having advances, um, in the 20th century was that the ability of people to do ethical reasoning was very much like their ability to handle language. It was, it was flexible in a way that simply had not ever been properly captured by lists of rules, which is the way that people were writing AI in those days. And so I said, well, you know, uh, if you're going to create a, a, an AI, a, a super intelligence in particular, that has not the ability to use language as well as it should, it's not going to be able to do ethics as well as it should either. And so we better start thinking about this. And, and the book was basically just opening the question and saying, let's start talking about this. So that was my book, Beyond AI. It appeared to have picked up quite a bit of following in its own little niche. And then the other one was nanotechnology, which is now a mainstream. Wow. I think you can forget me for the next week while I devour these two books as well. Let's talk about the book, Where is My Flying Car? The book is unusual. It starts as an examination of the technical limitations of building flying cars. Like it's really about flying cars. It's just not just a title. And it evolves into an investigation of the scientific, technological, and social roots of the economic stagnation that started in the 1970s. How did your thinking evolve up to the point of the book? When or how did you realize that something is off, that the progress that everyone is talking about is not what it should or what it could be? Well, one of the things that happened was that um, being in computer science, I got used to my field advancing at what would be considered a breakneck speed. I mean, you have Moore's law and you have the advance in uh, algorithms and the advance in processing power and advance in computer architectures. And, and I was actually kind of a little bitty part of that inventing stuff. And um, so I got to the point where I was actually retiring and, and, and taking stock of, you know, how everything had gone and so forth. And I, I started putting some effort into nanotechnology and I realized that it was just a lot harder than computer science had been and not because it was dealing with physical stuff although that also has something to do with it but that there were countervailing forces out there you know, what I uh, ultimately wound up calling the Machiavelli effect and when I started sitting down and thinking about that and saying you know well if, if we want to solve all these huge amazing problems that that the world has with the huge, amazing possibilities of nanotechnology, we're going to have to find some way to, to allow it to progress as fast as, as computer science did. So I got to thinking, well, you know, and, and whatever other technologies um, got held up the same way, um, now that I had personal experience in comparing two fields, one that, that really went uh, computer science and one that got kind of stepped on uh, nanotechnology. So... I started looking around, and then the other thing was that, that you know, in, in, in retirement, I became a keen uh, flyer and got an airplane and, you know, started and got a pilot's license and, and, and started flying. And, and now I was thinking, well, you know, it's not really all that hard. You know, people, people should have flying cars. And so I, I had to look and, and understand uh, the same kind of thing had really happened uh, in flying machines as well. That's fascinating. So there were kind of two major areas in your work that were that you can compare and contrast, sort of computer science and nanotechnology. 
So computer science advanced rapidly and nanotechnology was held back. Yes. And, uh, and of course, w once I really got into it and the, the major discovery I made during the writing of the book was the, the extent to which energy was, was the key enabler that really got stepped on the most. And, and that, uh, what I had called the, um, Henry Adams curve, where we had had more and more and more energy to do all the things that we wanted to do up to the seventies. And then it just flatlined and it was, it was not, it didn't just kind of slow down. It just, um, cut off flat. And, uh, when I made up that graph of, which you'll find in the book, um, of the, the technologies versus the 1960s era predictions for the technologies, there was a, there was just a clear cutoff that depended on the amount of energy the technology needed to use. I expected to find something of a correlation, which is why I went to the trouble of making that graph and, and working out those numbers in the first place. But for a sharp line like that, I, I was actually quite surprised. And to, to add on to that and to ask you a question about that as well, um, there's this fabulous website. The URL is WTFHappenedIn1971.com. And it's just a <laughs> compilation of like 40 graphs of a bunch of macro trends that all started nosediving or plateauing in 1971 specifically. Everything from oh. the dislocation of uh, productivity from GDP per capita to the differential returns from labor versus capital to things that are kind of very downstream of those things that we wouldn't even think are correlated, like the use of polysyllabic terms in political speeches plummeted starting in 1971. <laughs> uh, the youth uh, homeownership rate plummeted. The median home price skyrocketed. And they all have these very clear disjunctures in 1971, as does the energy uh, production that you mentioned as well. What do you think, and you, you hint at this and talk about this in the book somewhat, but I'd love for you to kind of flesh it out here. What do you think happened in 1971 that caused this effective plateau of, to put a, a broad gloss on it, a, a plateau of real, substantial, like material human progress in a way. Well, I, I think actually it wasn't a specific thing that happened in, in 1971. I think that what happened was that a whole bunch of trends culminated and cut, came together in, in, in some sort of social wave action process, like a perfect storm. I do think that uh, that is quite. A reasonable thing to have happened considering how many trends were building up to the point of when they all came together effects just sort of overwhelmed what would have been the, the, the normal resources and defenses of society. And also to train our listeners intuition a bit again because not everyone might be as familiar with this as we are. So what traders described what happened in 1971 is often called the great stagnation by economists. So Tyler Cowen, for example, Robert J. Gordon, sometimes Peter Thiel, and uh, Josh in his book is talking about this great stagnation, which is very counterintuitive, right? But the basic observation is that the period from 1880 to 1940 brought numerous major technological advances in our lives, like electricity, powerful motors, automobiles, airplanes, household appliances, indoor plumbing, the telephones, you name it, the list goes on and on and on. And in contrast, sort of the time after starting in the 70s brought seemingly only really the internet. But other than that, our lives are pretty much the same as they were in 1953. Would you add anything? Yeah, I, I, I think you can go back to my, my chart because I, I was keenly interested in which 
technology stopped and which ones went on. And, um, the, and the chart just shows that there's a very, very strong dependence on the amount of energy a particular technology used as to whether it kept going or whether it got stopped. And um, the, there was a, if there was a single thing that happened right then, it was that inflection in the, in the energy curve where the, where the exponentially increasing amount of energy that we had per capita suddenly flatlined. And, and since the 70s, we're still using the same or actually somewhat less. It's gone slightly down since. What role uh, do you think public policy played in this? And I, I have a sp particular angle I'm kind of angling at here, obviously working with uh, with Prospera. I spent a lot of time working on public policy and trying to uh, craft the most effective public policy environment for catalyzing innovation and for, for solving this stagnation effectively. What role do you think in particular the kind of snowballing of uh, laws and regulations and, and permitting processes and licensing, et cetera, uh, played on this? And in particular, do you think that has played a role on not just the innovation in these sectors, but but also on new firm creation in these sectors? So I, I like to think of this in terms of uh, Bastiat, who's one of my favorite political economists, uh, the seen and the unseen, right? We have the seen cost of the regulation, making it directly harder to innovate. We also have the unseen costs, right, of entrepreneurs who would have made advances in, say, nanotechnology and flying cars, et cetera, but didn't even bother trying because the mass of the federal regulatory code and other uh, legal barriers in the way of doing what they wanted to do were so great, they said, oh, why bother? It's not even going to be possible because the state won't let me effectively. So that is kind of my, my personal hobby horse on this, but I'm very curious what role you think that played in this, uh, in this flatlining. Yeah, well, I'll, I'll ride a few miles on that hobby horse. In particular, the, the one set of advances that, that we thought was going to be the third wave in energy production, which was nuclear, just got completely clobbered. And uh, not only did you have the normal sort of regulatory red tape and slow down and so forth, but we got a, an NRC that was actively anti-nuclear and, and just set out to, to strangle as many people as possible. It wasn't, it wasn't just business as usual red tape. It was activism against the whole uh, area that they were supposed to be regulating. That's probably the worst. That, that's really the case where public policy, if you will, um, just, just got completely turned against the progress in, in its field. I think you have a few things that, that allowed that to happen. But if you, if you go back and look at the, at the history of activism, up through the 50s, people got bigger and bigger and bigger cars and, and things were cool. And, and it was a, a status symbol to have a, a, a big car. And then the 60s were a, a region, you know, an area of turmoil. And, and, and you got big cars, but you also got little cars. And it's not all regulation either. The, the, the big three automakers in, in the United States just got so arrogant and sure of themselves, they, they started making cars that, you know, would fall apart in a couple of years. And the Japanese came in with these dinky little cars, but the difference was that they were, they were much higher quality than the, than the Detroit cars. And that's how they actually got in, you know, they got a, a toe in the door. The Japanese car industry kind of took over. And, and if you want to see two cases where it looks like pieces of America have been just bombed, okay, you can, you can find two of them. Um, you go to the Bronx where there's been rent control for, you know, decades and decades and decades. And you go to Detroit where 
what used to be the, the great factories of American car making were, and they look like they've been bombed out too. It's almost sick to see, but you know, uh, if you, if you just want to, um, steep yourself in angst at some point, <laughs> have a look at those. Yeah, that's exactly right. And I'll just add one more point on that. There's this fantastic book called the sack of Detroit by Kenneth white that I read a few months ago that goes into great detail on this. And it is indeed, uh, probably 50% exactly what you're saying, Josh, which is that the, the U S automakers, they were over 30% of aggregate U S GDP by that point. It were like by far the massive proportion of the U S economy in the 1950s. And they got utterly complacent and were outcompeted by the Japanese. But when they tried to pivot uh, to compete with the Japanese, uh, Ralph Nader came along and effectively nuked the industry single-handedly because he was a, an ardent uh, anti-capitalist. Um, so I would definitely recommend readers check out The Sack of Detroit as well. But even that, uh, even that example, I agree with you, part of that was indeed missteps by American industry. But a, a big part of that was also this push for safety regulations that result in what we see today, which are bigger cars uh, that are all fairly homogenous because uh, the federal government regulates down to the detail of the inches of bumper you can have. Uh, the degrees of curvature versus sharpness you can have on corners of cars. I mean, everything, everything. The reason cars all look roughly the same today is precisely because of that U.S. regulatory environment. So I think even that yeah. is an example of, of this this trend continuing. Yeah, I uh, I have a um, an appendix in, in my original version of the book that I think got taken out of the, the paper one um, that, that goes over. At, it's basically just a section from the car regulations if I remember correctly, it, it had to do with rear view mirrors or something like that. This turns out to have been one of the um, things that was getting in the way of people making flying cars because airplanes don't have rear view mirrors for obvious reasons. They're, they're air brakes. What you would like in an airplane is perfectly possible. In fact, every car even actually has one is a rear view camera that you can use and, and, and not have some giant thing sticking out into your airstream and wasting energy. But that in HTSA or whoever it is that regulates these things, and unfortunately there are too many uh, regulatory bodies for me to actually even know who they all are, has not allowed people trying to make convertible car airplanes to do that. I thought that was just such an obvious example. I, I, I stuck it in there as, a, as a, uh, an appendix. And then I'll, I'll have one more point and then uh, turn it back over to you, Nicholas, to move on to another topic. But another example of this, of how they're stymieing progress in, in transportation as well as in drone technology, uh, the FAA has effectively just declared war on the entire drone industry. It's next to impossible to make passenger drones. Uh, they stopped. Amazon had a great plan to make a fleet of drones that could carry up to 10 kilograms apiece to deliver packages in 30 minutes or less around the U.S. The FAA put the kibosh on that entirely. So it's not just the NHTSA. It's also basically every federal regulator, to your point. This is why ideology matters a lot is, is just captured by activists who actively despise the industries in which they're regulating. The FAA is another example of that. And it's why it's why we also don't have flying drone taxis is the exact same reason. Or, or just flying drone pizza delivery for that matter. I mean, which, you know, it, it, something that light, um, they ought to just let it run. And, and, and if not, they should just take, say, okay, anybody in Nevada can fly anything they want anywhere. There's not going to be all that much. Uh, downside if if somebody builds a machine that crashes and and messes up its pizza, or even if they're if they're nuts enough to go up in the thing themselves, crashes and messes them up the same way. I mean that's how we got aviation in the first place. Why does it have to be a complete ban on 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 experimentation like that? It speaks to the psychological and philosophical standpoint of the regulators as opposed to what ought to be a, a, a reasonable and rational 
standpoint of somebody who is actually trying to advance society's capabilities and, 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 and make a better world for the future. On the drone point, Trey, I was wondering if you want to talk a bit about what Prosper is doing with Aerial Loop. Yeah, for sure. So again, this is fits into my kind of hobby horse about regulation, timing, innovation, and, and the the potentials to be unlocked here are, are immediately obvious. One of the first firms we've had set up in Prosper is called Aerial Loop. It's a uh, Latin American drone company, and they do like commercial drone deliveries. Their drones can carry up to five kilograms, and they've already set up in the Prosper Zeta and are running uh, drone flights to other parts of the island in between the uh, the connected hubs we have, one on the uh, island of Roatan and one on the mainland in La Ceiba. Um, and it's just a perfect example of, yes, it, it, to your point, uh, Josh, like having a regulatory environment that exists to not stand in opposition to innovators and entrepreneurs, but to enable them while still ensuring public safety is not that hard to do um, and enables an immediate step change increase in the type of technologies uh, available for consumers and the lived experience of those consumers. Uh, so this is another area where, yeah, not to, to too prosperous horn alone, but I mean, there's so many low-hanging fruit that have yet to be picked because the regulatory state effectively stands in the way. And I think it's primarily because of a, an ideology I call safetyism. I don't know if it has an actual name, but effectively the, the heuristic for the regulators did not become, um, we should stop worst case scenarios and let innovation flourish otherwise. The heuristic is instead, if anything can possibly be construed to possibly have even the tiniest infinitesimal amount of risk to someone somewhere, it must be ex ante stopped and made illegal until you can prove the safety otherwise. It's the, the, the default of safetyism is precisely the opposite of what it should be to encourage innovation while still maintaining a healthy balance of public safety. Yeah, it's sort of like what I, I talk about in the book under the subheading of uh, Speed Limit 1, uh, where, you, where they're, they're doing that uh, very, very harshly in the, in the case of anything having to do with radiation. Um, I have a, I have a fun story. I don't think it got into the book, but uh, one of my cousins is a physicist at the National Institutes of Standards and Technology. And, um, they have there a gram of radium that had been given to the National Bureau of Standards by Marie Curie back in the twenties when she discovered it. They had taken up a, I think it was the women of Europe or something, had, had taken up a collection to give the United States this, this princely gift of a gram of radium for, for research purposes. And the, the National Bureau slash Institute um, has had this ever since. And it's getting harder and harder for them to hang on to it because the NRC is trying to make them get rid of it because it's radioactive. <laughs> it's insane. It really is. And, 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 the one that actually did make it into the book is is the the very first sample of, of plutonium that was that was developed during the the Second World War by the use of uh, particle accelerators, and it was the first piece of actual material of a of a brand new element that that mankind had ever made. Having a whole lot of trouble trying to hang on to that, even though it's a vastly important historical artifact. Yep, I mean, the, the, my favorite data point on this, to your point earlier, is that the NRC, the Nuclear Regulatory Commission which was set up for the express purpose of approving new nuclear reactors, new nuclear power uh, stations in the United States, has not, since it was created in, I think, 1975 or 1971, one of the two, has not approved a single application for a new nuclear power station in the U.S. Not one, since, it, since they were, the group was founded in the 1970s. Just a perfect example of what you're talking about. It's not like we're saying, oh, they're only approving 100 and they should be approving 1,000, although that would be a preferable. They're approving zero, like literally none. 
yeah, the thing that was of interest to me was how many examples there are that, that are sort of halfway. And you have, a, you have a whole ecology of technologies that enable each other. And one of the, one of the key things I was doing was channeling Arthur Clarke and, and, and trying to look at what future technology would be like. And one of the ways of looking at stagnation is to measure the distance between where you are and where you might have been. And where you might have been is essentially a physical technology that's advanced to the same extent that our, our computing and communications technology has. And you just sit there and think about that for a minute. What if, what if your, uh, your car or your airplane, or what if you had a gadget sitting on your desk that could do as many physical things as your iPhone can do uh, informational and, and computational ones. If you want to get a one simple example, it turns out that in, in the world of competition chess, there's a joke that people say, and one of, and, and the joke goes, well, my iPhone can beat the world chess champion. And the, and the other guy says, well, my toaster can beat the world chess champion. And the fact is that the, the, it's a joke because your toaster can't beat the world chess champion, but your iPhone can. I mean, and, and that's just incredible. Um, they, IBM had to build a special machine uh, back in the 90s to beat the world chess champion. And, but nowadays, you know, you have it in your pocket, that much computation and that much accumulated knowledge in the program and the algorithmic advances as, as well. But that's the sort of thing that you ought to have in physical technology as well, and we just don't. So looking back, it seems the internet and communication technology was the only, you know, out of many things, technologies that we could have had, sort of that's how our future could have looked like. And it seemed also in, in the internet, there was a history where that was not always clear. Like the regulator could have potentially also said no. There were some inflection points in the history of the internet. And just, just to drive the point home about regulation. Yes, in the beginning of a new technology, things are unsafe and there's fraud, there's porn, there's scams in the internet, right? And, uh, but over time, it gets better, it gets safer, right? And we wouldn't want to live in a world without the internet, I hope we recognize now. But the regulators kind of demanding the safety features from what would be effectively year 10 in year one. So it's basically saying, you know, you need the safety that that is not possible for, that's just misunderstanding technology and thereby blocking it in its infancy before it can become something that's living up to its promise of benefits. I think I would try and make that a little more nuanced. I, I think not only are the regulators just simply overdoing it. I, I think that part of the problem is that they're just responding to the wrong incentives. And I'll point you to a case where regulation completely failed. And that was uh, gain of function experiments on viruses. And it just recently came out. Somebody published a paper that they're still doing gain of function experiments and they're still, and they're still adding nasty bits to the Omicron variant of, of COVID-19 on purpose. And you look at that and you say, what? How could they do that? And the thing is that the place they should have been regulating, the people they should have been, you know, saying, oh, you really shouldn't be doing that. Um, they were hiding the fact that they were doing it 
and that they were allowing it. In fact, they were um, the so-called regulators were actually funding it in, in some cases. I don't think anybody knows the, the whole story, but I, I think there's enough information out there that, that you can say that this is absolutely a case of regulatory failure. Instead, what they're doing is keeping me from from flying an ultralight out over uh, Chesapeake Bay um, just to see what I can make it do. Just to drive that point home, um, the exact paper you're, you're referencing, I've read this morning, actually, so it's funny timing. Uh, a team at Boston University, uh, even though we just had a global pandemic because of what is in all likelihood a laboratory escape of gain-of-function research, a team at Boston University, a very crowded uh, city in the United States, just did some research where they modified the spike protein of the Omicron COVID virus to give it an 80% mortality for, uh, fatality rate in mice, 80%. That's the type of gain-of-function research they are still doing. So this is a perfect example of just raw regulatory failure, again, because of misaligned incentives uh, amongst the people doing the regulating. So I want to quickly summarize the thesis of the book and what you just described, and then talk about a couple of other interesting areas of technology where you basically tell the history of why it's not the way it could be, right? So the key thesis um, or the explanation for what we call the great stagnation has to do with energy, right? So what you called before the Henry Adams curve basically describes the process of an increasing amount of energy usage that goes hand in hand with technological progress. And then in the 1970s, a decline or stagnation of energy usage. And a key piece to the story of that is nuclear power. And the fact that nuclear power has been outregulated, even though it has massive and huge potential. In one way, how you describe basically what the effect that it has on technology and on progress, you were basically looking at predictions of future technologies by science fiction writers, what we will have in the future, and you graphed them by the ones that were relatively more and less dependent on energy intensity and energy use. And you basically found that we got all the ones that require little use of energy, and we got none of the ones that had a high use of energy. That's the graph I was saying that I was, I was even surprised myself when it came out that way. It was, it was a stark cutoff line. Exactly. So to talk about a couple of these technologies that are in there, I have a list of technologies that I would love to, to name and to go through, and you can talk a bit what the possibilities there are and where it could be today if we had continued on the trajectory we had before. But we could start with nanotechnology. Yeah, uh, well, um, nanotechnology is one of the ones that it stands about halfway in between the good stuff, like the like computers and communication and, and so forth, and the bad stuff like, like nuclear. Um, and the reason that nanotechnology got held up was almost entirely due to the fact that uh, the government decided to fund it in a typically politically sleazy way uh, in the United States. I don't think the other, the other countries suffered that much of a back backlash to it, but um, seeing what was happening to the nanotechnology researchers in, in the U.S. Uh, might have had an influence on them. And, and, and I, I've been able to talk to some of the guys in, in, in various other countries and uh, who said, now nah, that, that can't be happening. And then they come to the U.S. and, and lo and behold, yeah, I guess maybe it is happening. And what happened was that if you followed Eric Drexler's original scheme for building machines at the nanoscale, or you tried to follow Feynman's 
idea of building smaller machines and smaller machines and smaller machines, all of which you knew how to build as long as you work out the techniques for improving your precision as you go along, then we should have had nanotechnology in its complete and utter form of the ability to create anything that, that physics allows to exist uh, on the atomic scale. Uh, by now, we should have had. The uh, reason it didn't was that in the 90s, in the uh, National Science Foundation and, and so forth, the people in charge of the, of the funding realized that the, the National Nanotechnology Initiative did not provide a whole new half a million dollars for nanotechnology research. It stole half a billion dollars for nanotechnology research from all these other areas. And so everybody in those affected areas got up in arms and there was a, a political wave backlash. And um, what they did was, A, they stole the term nanotechnology. And so what's called nanotechnology research now uh, bears very little resemblance to what the, the original concept was. What they did was just they took all everything they were doing that could be me measured in nanometers and called it nanotechnology. And I don't want to say too much about it because all of that was good scientific research. And all the people were doing was defending their own funding as, as well as they could. But if you, if you tried to do that, and, and particularly if you attached that activity to a concept, that concept's going to get squashed. I mean, that's just the way everybody who likes to continue making their living um, is going to react to something like that. It's not only a, uh, a natural human thing, it's a natural human thing that was written about in detail 500 years ago by Niccolo Machiavelli. It should have been expected, but of course it wasn't because that's just the way these things work. Um, but that's what happened to nanotechnology. What's happened is that the progress in that so that, that focused area got crushed, but uh, progress towards finer uh, mechanical control and uh, the ability to manipul manipulate molecules and, and, and the science of the area and all that sort of stuff is still going on. It's just not going on in a focused way that, that would have allowed us to have nanotech. Now, but I think that we're probably going to have it in the next decade or two, and that's going to enable an enormous amount of stuff of the kind that I'm talking about, including flying cars that are, that are powerful and quiet and can fly themselves and, and so forth. I, I think that the, the, a, a good way of looking at what the future of technology could be like is to take three areas. You have the one that's, that's going great guns right now, the artificial intelligence and, uh, and computing. You take the one that is kind of getting there, but not as fast as it could be, which is nanotechnology. And then you have uh, nuclear and, and energy. And if you put those three together, you have what I was calling the second atomic age, where the ability not only to make these incredible machines, but to power them comes back around to the sort of thing that, that people expected in 1960. I have a question on, on the nanotechnology front specifically. So one of the arguments I have seen, and this is not what the regulator said, to be clear, but one of the arguments I have seen kind of against the experimental approach and the kind of more freewheeling approach to developing nanotechnology is this uh, existential risk that some people talk about. They call the gray goo, which I'm, I'm sure you've heard of before, but for the audience's benefit, I'll, I'll lay it out very briefly. 
The idea is if we gain the ability to arbitrarily arrange molecules effectively through tiny self-replicating machines on the nanoscale, that if these are kind of unleashed on the environment and are able to arbitrarily convert other matter into themselves, basically, because they're self-replicating and they can arbitrarily organize molecules, uh, that this turns into this uh, ever-expanding gray goo that you effectively can't stop uh, because it's just converting all available matter into more copies of itself, basically. Um, obviously, I don't think this is the case, and I'm very bullish on nanotech, but I wanted to steel man the, the existentialist kind of existential risk argument against this. How do you respond to, to that charge? Because I have I've brought this up to friends before, the nanotech point in particular, and they're like, oh, well, maybe that's not a good example because if you just let people experiment with nanotech, they'll kill us all, basically. Well, I, I don't think that's actually a, a, a serious problem. It would be possible to invent, you know, once, once we had a lot of experience with nanotech, machines that would, that would be pretty nasty to have around. But I don't think they're, they're going to be uh, the result of, of haphazard experimental problems. I, I think they're going to be done by people setting out to build nasty machines. Sort of like, okay, everybody worries about um, uh, recombinant DNA and, and biotech and, and all that sort of stuff. And then you turn around and say, oh, well, look, you know, we had this, this pandemic. Well, this pandemic was because of people specifically trying to build nasty gadgets. Well, so I think that people specifically trying to build nasty gadgets is something you have to look out for, but that's also the case in any powerful technology. And my take on it, which um, I explore to some extent in, in my nanotechnology book, which you might be interested in reading, is that the best defense against that kind of thing is to have a general level of technology understanding and preparedness that is higher than the, the single evil scientist on his island lair um, rather than trying to prevent there being any research whatsoever. So I think that, that a general level of, of, of good guys with powerful machines is a much better defense against one or two bad guys with powerful machines than, than trying to prevent there being powerful machines. You mentioned something before in the nanotechnology story, the Machiavelli effect, and I think it was such a brilliant way to understand basically politics. So I'm going to give the Machiavelli quote in full. It's from Nicola Machiavelli, the prince from 1532. There's nothing more difficult to take in hand, more perilous to conduct, or more uncertain in his success than to take the lead in the introduction of a new order of things. Because the innovator has for enemies all those who have done well under the old conditions, and lukewarm defenders in those who may do well under the new conditions. This coolness arises partly from fear of the opponents, we have the laws on their side, and partly from the incredulity of men, who do not readily believe in new things until they have had a long experience in them. Thus it happens that whenever those who, who are hostile have the opportunity to attack, they do it like partisans, whilst the others defend lukewarmly in such wise that the prince is endangered along with them. So I think that's also something that describes the journey of almost any, any entrepreneur as bringing out something new into the world. And it just shows what Absolutely. you're up against. 
And this also shows yes, such a deep fear of teacher of human nature that Machiavelli observed it 500 years ago. I, I do want to point out, though, and, and this is one of my favorite quotes in all the world, and, and, and thank you for reading it. But Machiavelli wrote this, and it was absolutely true. But he wrote this during the Renaissance, which was a period of uh, rapid innovation and, and, and great social advance. Um, so it's not a death sentence. It's just a roadblock, I mean, it's something you can get around, you can go over, uh, you can, if, if absolutely necessary, bust up. Um, but, um, you know, even though he, it was true to the extent that he wrote about it in the book when, when he was there, it wasn't the reigning dynamic of his age. Fantastic. I also love it. That reminded me when, often when I talk to founders, like when I talk too much about, you know, all the things that are messed up and regulation holding things back, they're like, yeah, so what? Let's not complain. Let's do things. Let's get it done. Let's get around it, which is the exact correct yeah. attitude. And I just love it. But that was kind of the point about nanotechnology, um, that it was held back kind of by political obstacles and infighting because of the public science funding, right? So that might be a hint to entrepreneurs out there. I've talked in this podcast a couple of times about decentralized science, right? So alternative ways to fund basic research. So we're seeing it already, for example, in biotechnology. So companies like VidaDAO, they're sourcing from a network often of, you know, people who, Vitalik Buterin, people who are big and have made money in crypto and basically, you know, fund basic science through DAOs without going through any centralized organization. So that seems to be the correct learning from the mistake of um, that has been, that have been made in nanotechnology, right? That you have a greater variety and competition for science funding. Well, I think ultimately that's what's going to happen. I mean, I, I think what's going to happen in, in nanotechnology is going to be the same thing that's happened in AI over about the past five-ish years. Not to break my arm patting myself on the back, but I predicted that 10 years before that in the AI book. I was writing in criticism of the people who said, oh, we're going to build an AI that's going to be so smart that it's going to improve itself. And all of a sudden, we're going to have this infinitely intelligent creature that, that's going to take over the world and do all these horrible things. I said, that's not the way it's going to happen. What's going to happen is right now, there's a cadre of, of, of cool kids who think that AI is going to be uh, the next great thing. And they've been working on it, and they can't even agree on how to do it. And they can't agree on how it's going to work and so forth. And I was in that. I mean, I, I was a, an AI researcher for, for a lot of my career. So I said, what's actually going to happen is that at some point, some of the, some of the stuff is actually just going to start working. Somebody's going to have just enough good ideas to put something together that does something notably better than the other way of doing it. And then the money is going to start to, to flow into the field. And so, the, the people who are doing this are going to be able to hire new smart people to do this as opposed to something else. And the, the self-organization that takes place in a market is going to concentrate resources and brains uh, into the people doing AI. And that's exactly what happened. And so I think that nanotechnology is just waiting for that moment where uh, somebody starts getting molecular machines working not to the point where they can make a cutesy uh, press release and, and article in the, in the science press, but 
something that's obviously better um, than the other way of doing it or whatever uh, other way we have. And people are going to start saying, oh, wow, I've got to get into this or, you know, I'll lose my shirt. So uh, the money is going to start flowing into Nowtech. And, and if I had to guess, I'd say around 2030, maybe, but that's a very uh, loose guess. But I, I think it's going to happen before 2040, uh, that, that the same kind of uh, sudden bloom of, of techniques and resources and uh, ideas and, and, and the explosion of papers and, and, and people talking about it, because it works, uh, it's going to happen in, in nanotech the same way it did in AI. And that'll be number two in my three technologies. Great. I wanted to ask about this. I'll talk about this more a bit later, but just to make a note that you and also Trey and I were fundamentally optimists, right? So we're not pointing out all these problems with technology, all these bad things that happen and hold it back. We're fundamentally doing it basically to try to overcome it and, you know, work on the ground to, to create a better future. Um, with that said, um, let's talk a bit more about other areas of technology where um, you say in the book, we could have made much more advances again, in no particular order, but what I'd also be interested in to talk about is cybernetics and AI, biotechnology, cold fusion, space travel. Which ones would you like to talk about? Well, since we've been talking about it, uh, first let's talk about AI. Um, I think it's it's pretty clear now, especially to anyone in the investing world, but but anybody in the technological world too, that AI is, is past the threshold and, and we're suddenly uh, in an era where we can expect the capabilities of AI just to get better and better at a very steady rate, uh, if not an increasing rate as time goes on. I would say 2030 by the point. And, and in, in this case, I, I think that's a far limit that, that we're going to have machines that you can't um, tell from a person, not that you cared, but you know, you call up in a call center and, and you don't get somebody uh, who has been given three minutes of training and, and, and sit in a chair. You get a machine that actually knows absolutely everything you need to, to know and, and need to do. And, and lots of other jobs like that um, are going to start being done more capably. And that's just going to have a, a, a general beneficial effect. I, I hesitate to say because the the reasons that our political and, and, and regulatory systems are, are so bad are not really that we don't know how to do it better. It's that, that there are lots of other reasons that they're, they're not being done right. But it may well be the case that, that somebody somewhere tries using a, an AI as a, as a regulator or, um, uh, in fact, as a, as a whole government. Um, and this is by far from a done deal or, or necessarily going to work, but the more people try it, somebody's going to start getting it better and better. And, and after a while, people are going to realize that you really don't want to have a, a, a bunch of random politicians running your life. You want to have some machine that, that is, is super competent running your life instead. I think there's, there's at least grounds for some kind of optimism on that scale. So that's one of the reasons I, I think that we're going to be able to, as, a, as the human race, handle having very powerful technologies because one of them is going to be the science of, 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 of governing properly and, and, and putting 
the technology we have to the best uses. That's AI. I mean, and, and I, you know, I want Rosie, the robot to be the person who's, she's cleaning up my house and, and, but I also want, you know, the robot doctor who's you know, ro operating on me, who's, and who doesn't get tired and, and, and knows absolutely everything in the, in the medical journals and, and so forth. And ultimately, you know, all the, all the really critical things are, are going to be done um, by AIs uh, simply because they'll be doing them better than, than humans. So what does that leave for us to do? Well, that's what we got to figure out. It's definitely something worth working on, isn't it? Uh, if you have all the resources you could possibly want, what would you do? I mean, how, how can you make things better for yourself or for everyone else? So to change subjects, um, you know, let's colonize the solar system. Let's get out there so that the next six mile asteroid doesn't knock out all life on earth the way it did 63 million years ago. Let's do a whole bunch of other cool stuff like that, that we'll be able to do, uh, because we will have the competent helpers who will be able to do what we would consider magic with the physical technology. And so the, the situation of the human race will be, okay, let's, let's figure out what the really good things that we can do that we need to do, or that we would like to do and do them. So here you have, uh, AI and you have things like space travel, you asked about cold fusion. I talk about cold fusion in the book. I talk about it as a scientific problem that I think also suffered from Can the- Can you say briefly what effect. is cold fusion? There was a, a famous bunch of experiments starting in 1989 where some researchers at, at, at Utah and then a whole bunch of other people uh, began to show that they could get more heat out of electrolytic experiments involving deuterium and palladium than current physics could explain. And they thought it was due to fusion. And the problem is that physics, as, as everybody understood then, and in fact, physics, as everybody understands it now, says that can't happen. So, and yet, here we had experiments that, that were showing that you could, in fact, get excess heat out of these experiments, and they've been replicated hundreds and hundreds of times since then. Um, so the question is, what really is going on in there? And that's what we need nanotechnology to do, because something's going on at the molecular level, at the atomic level, that produces some configuration of atoms that almost never happens. It's really difficult to get these things right, but if you try hard enough, and basically, you, you, you get 100 pieces of palladium, and you do all the, all the techniques that everybody has finally come to realize you have to do to get anything to work at all. Uh, so you load them over 90% to with uh, deuterium, and you have them at just the right temperature and pressure, and you, uh, and you hit them with, with two lasers that have just the right beat frequency between their, their optical frequencies, and you get the effect three times out of a hundred. Okay. It, it, it's just not something we know enough about what's actually going on down at the molecular scale to actually understand what the mechanism is. But if we had nanotechnology, we can investigate that. We could do control experiments and actually set up exactly the, the sort of molecular uh, configurations that people are thinking might be causing this 
and we could figure out which one really does it. And then we'd be able to figure out why and, and design new machines that did it better and, and, and that kind of thing. And I think that's one of the more likely ways of getting into using nuclear energy as a, as a, uh, a replacement for fossil fuels, because doing it the way we know how to do it, which is to, to build a, a, a gigantic heap of uranium and, and let it get hot is, is kind of almost medieval in his character. I mean, you, one of the things that that's happened since the industrial revolution is that a 20 horsepower motor went from being a three-story building to being uh, a racing chainsaw that you could hold in your hand. The nuclear power reactors that we have nowadays look more like that three-story building that began the industrial revolution than the developed version of the, of the, of the high-end motor. And in fact, now you can, you can even get better with a, a, a turbine. Uh, but the fact is that the, the, the technology of maybe 300, maybe 200, maybe 100 years from now is going to be to current nuclear reactors as, as our high-powered motors are to that Newcomen three-story steam engine. And to add on to that even more, I mean, to and to give a shout out to uh, an, an acquaintance of mine, the uh, the crew over at Oclo, uh, the nuclear power company, they have already taken a step in that direction. Uh, the NRC is the only thing standing in their way. Their reactor, they have a modular reactor set up, one of which can put out up to 15 megawatts that fits in the size of a small, like a, a, a fairly a small warehouse, like a small building. You give it the size of an A-frame house, roughly. Um, and it is inherently safe. They're buried in the ground. Uh, the reactor core itself is. Uh, they use molten sodium, uh, which means the fluid dynamics of the system itself makes it such that it is like a physical impossibility by the laws of physics for the thing to overheat uh, because of the the melting capacity uh, or the melting temperature of sodium. And these things already exist. There's already a, which is a three order of magnitude or, or, or greater decrease in the size of the actual unit to your point, because right now the existing uh, Takamak reactors are, are massive. Uh, they're even bigger than a three story building. In fact, like five, six story building, they're massive structures. Uh, so this this te te technology in this direction already exists um, and is unfortunately being held up by the same uh, Machiavellian forces we've been discussing this whole time. So I bring that up just to drive home, like, the things Josh is saying for the audience are not like pie-in-the-sky dreaming. Uh, many of them already exist and are well on the way if only the political actors would get out of the way and let them happen. Anything else um, in... So, so we're now in the multiverse. There's different kinds of parallel universes, and we're in the one that we're in now in a universe where we would have gotten much of the progress we've been talking about, how would biotechnology look like? I'm not sure that we're missing out all that much as to what we could have done. I think what we are going to be able to do is, is uh, really quite fascinating. But I, I, I think we're probably uh, within a decade of some breakthroughs on things like uh, anti-aging research, um, and anti-cancer research and, and the sort of thing that, you know, everybody's been saying, you know, well, this is cure cancer. Well, the fact is that, that we're actually getting kind of close to that. And that is one of the technologies that has not been held up as much because it's a low energy technology. I mean, you, you have people in, in uh, white coats walking around labs carrying test tubes, and it just doesn't look as dangerous as it actually is. And so you don't have the, the sort of backlash against it because they all say, well, we're trying to cure cancer. Uh, and everybody says, go for it. Biotechnology is probably advanced at roughly the rate you could have expected back in the 60s. 
But then again, probably oh, yeah. also and, more in the area of the mm -hmm. science and not in the area of, you know, commercializing a lot of these great innovations, right? Because, you know, in that area, we have the problem of the FDA. That's basically saying, you know, anything that goes to market has to be tested for 10 to 15 years and costs hundreds of millions, right? Yes, you, you do have that. Every, anything that can be classed as, as anything even vaguely medical gets really restricted. I would personally like somebody to find a way to get around that because, you know, I'm not getting any younger here. I would surely like some of that to happen sooner rather than later. Um, so I, I, I really don't know. Um, uh, I mean, I, I, I talked a little bit about um, things like, uh, you know, RNA vaccines and, and so forth, which, which is sort of, you know, popped out of, out of nowhere. But, um, and he used a whole bunch of different technologies, in, 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 including micromachining. That sort of thing gets really enhanced by A, computing, because you can do molecular simulations of what's going on in, in, in these things. Uh, and B, um, nanotechnology, because you're able to get closer to the uh, actual processes and control what's going on and, and, and build things perhaps that you couldn't have built otherwise and, and so forth. So I think that we're, we're on the threshold of a fairly major golden age in, in biotechnology as well, as long as they don't start, you know, making uh, nastier viruses. But I can actually give a concrete example uh, of an area where the regulatory environment and the FDA is holding up progress in biotech and in things like uh, longevity uh, treatment. I can do it by way of example uh, within Prospera. There is a uh, biotech startup in Prospera called MiniCircle uh, that is currently uh, doing a distributed clinical trial based out of Prospera of a drug called folistatin. It's a folistatin mini circle gene therapy. And I won't go into the details of exactly how it works, but it's a fairly efficacious uh, anti-aging treatment. It, it increases muscle mass, bone density. It can decrease uh, adiposity, which is just a fancy way of saying decreased body fat, basically. All things that have strong correlations with uh, biological aging. And the reason that they set up in Prospera was precisely because they could legally and under a safe and, and reasonable regulatory environment do that treatment within the jurisdiction, whereas they could not do it basically anywhere else in the world, not because it's dangerous. It's not. In fact, uh, during the regulatory review process in Prospera, where we, uh, we audited their technology, there was, we couldn't even find it. We had a, a PhD molecular biologist review it, and we couldn't find a single way that it could even be construed as possibly being dangerous. So of course they could do it um, as, as reasonable regulators should. So I am sure there are a million more examples like that in the world, but just to give one concrete example and, and shout out to my friend, Mac Davis, uh, who runs a, a mini circle there in Prospera. It's just an example of the things that are possible right now, uh, if only these, these, these regulators would effectively get out of the way. Fantastic. Faster, please. I want to, in the same vein, talk finally about the actual flying car, right? So what is kind of the history of the flying car, the technical limitations, and what's been holding it back? Where, where is our, my flying car? Where is it? Why is it not here yet? Well, as, as I, I typically say in interviews, People say, well, when are we going to get the flying car? And I say, basically, as soon as we want them, because the reason we don't have them now is not, I mean, this is one of the things I set out to, to understand when I was writing the book and, and, and it included, you know, buying an airplane and, and becoming a pilot and, and trying, I mean, I, I have owned not only a, a fixed ring airplane, but a, a, a gyrocopter and it's that you'd think that without with all this 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 fall roll, it, it it would be a hard thing to fly an airplane it's not really I mean, it it is not as easy as driving a, a ground car 
And there are some people that I see driving ground cars that I wouldn't want to see flying a flying car. But for the average Joe, I, th I think he would be a perfectly usable pilot, especially with the sort of autopilots that we can make nowadays with the electronics and the, the sensor capabilities that we have and so forth. I, I think that basically you're going to be able to, to, to get into a machine and say, let's go here and move your, your hand around on an iPad-like surface or something and say, okay, here's the route or um, here's what I want to do or whatever, is you should be able to do that. In fact, uh, today, we, my wife and I just went up to uh, visit a phone store that was about 40 minutes away. And, and I was calculating, okay, if, if we had had a, a flying car that was nothing better than a helicopter, we could have gotten there in less than 15 minutes and saved ourselves a little, uh, a little time, but the, um, but it would have been a cooler drive too. We have the technology now. Um, if we had not fallen off the Henry Adams curve and had the great stagnation, there are a lot of people who could afford something that was essentially like a, a current day helicopter. We can, we can improve it as far as speed is concerned. We can improve it as far as noise is concerned. Um, we can even improve it as, as far as how much space you need to land is concerned. But the fact is that since the 1930s, we've had things that were perfectly usable flying cars available technologically. And the fact that they haven't come down in price the way most significant technologies have done and the fact that they have been regulatorily oppressed is a function of why, why we did as a society didn't want to have them. So my answer, again, is we'll get them when we want them pretty much as soon as we do want them um, because they, they're, the technology is there. And it, it took me a while just to get over the point of saying, okay, there, there's something that needs to be invented here that we don't have yet that will make flying cars possible. And everybody who's a, a, a techie or a nerd and, and approaches the subject seems to have the same idea. Okay, I'm going to invent the one thing that's standing between us and the flying car. There's nothing standing between us and the flying car except the regulation and the fact that people just don't seem to care. Yeah, you also mentioned in your book the liability crisis of the 1980s and the traffic control systems. Right. Do you want to talk a bit about Oh, oh yeah. Well, that, that's, uh, that's a cool piece of, it's not cool, but it, it's a piece of history that, that is, is, is very germane to the subject. The liability revolution in the, in the seventies completely destroyed the, the light aircraft industry and in all the, the companies that, that used to be, I mean, every, every single one of them, um, either reorganized or, or just went bust. And then they, they came back out of it and in Congress kind of noticed that Oh, we completely destroyed an injury. Oh, industry, how bad. And, and so they, they wrote these new laws. But I mean, before that, you could have an airplane. You got into the airplane. You were drunk. You flew into somebody's house. The plane was 40 years old. The, the survivors of the, of the crash could still sue the manufacturer. I mean, that's insane. Uh, but that's the level to which the, the sort of idiocy had, had gone. And so the liability revolution, which basically allowed anybody to sue anybody with deep pockets, was a major factor in, in, in killing off the light aircraft industry. I really don't know what to do about that because 
people just seem to like to be able to sue people and and we just need a uh, a new way of thinking about what's nice and what's not nice yeah i wonder if machiavelli said anything about people suing each other <laughs> i think back in his day they were a little more straightforward about it and they just went out with a sword there's one last piece of stranded technology that i'd like to you to talk about because it's so close to what trey is doing at prospera which is cities right so you're describing in the book how cities could look very different they could be multi-level multi-lane highways they could be on the sea they could be domes they could be aerostats well right now if you look at a city a city ought to be a, a really cool place to live i mean you have a whole bunch of people and if you do live in a city which i have briefly the sort of things that are provided by the marketplace are, are just really good i mean there were more than 50 really top-notch restaurants within our apartment when we lived in Dallas. It was just a, a really play, a really good place to be if, if that's the sort of thing you're into. Uh, on the other hand, it was, it was full of unsavory characters, and you were much, much more likely to be uh, mugged or had somebody uh, just come up and, and, and be unpleasant, cad, try and catch money off of you or something like that, um, making it a, an unpleasant environment in, in many ways. I think that somehow or other, the, the notion of, of, of how you run a city has just been forgotten. I really don't even know how to describe them, but, but there are social and political forces that have taken over aspects of governance that make a city as a, as a unified technology, one of our most poorly performing technologies. And because I was focusing on transportation in the, in the book, um, and flying cars and all that sort of stuff. I, I said, look, if you want to take a piece of technology that we actually know how to make work and, um, you know, an, a, a neighborhood of, of, of 250 people, it could be in a Jetson style house on a spike. It could be in an apartment building in, in the middle of Dallas. It could be, uh, my current neighborhood, which is on a, a spit of land in the uh, Chesapeake Bay, people seem to be able to make that work. I mean, obviously there are places where it doesn't, but mostly those are, are parts of bigger groups of people. And, and when you have, you know, like 250 people, the Dunbar number um, of people in, in close communication, and then there's, there's, a, there's a larger uh, hop to get to the, to the next set of people, um, that seems to work. So, you know, the, if, if you were going to say, how do I build a, a functioning city, I say, you know, look at the Jetsons, put 250 people in that, that sky apartment sort of thing they had, and then have to get in your flying car to get to the next one. Um, and, it, and, and just spread it out all over Arizona or something. That would be my first guess. But um, if you're going to build a city that is just going to be like one giant structure where every, every human made thing is, is touching every other human made thing, which is the case in our existing cities. Don't make it so that the only way to get from point A to point B is driving on the same ground surface that was there before you built the buildings. You know, have, have a, an integrated, pre-designed transportation infrastructure so you can get from any point to any other point in the city much faster than you could have done. Chances are you don't actually want to have little buildings standing up on, on blocks in between the streets. You just want to have the whole thing be one, one big machine that was designed for all that. And, you know, people could, could either live in, in internal apartments that had, you know, giant screen showing scenes of nature or, 
um, they could actually live on the top, which would be the you know high price apartments, and all the all the works and infrastructure could be you know inside. But um, uh, I think I think our our cities have grown up as a result of of, of evolution that uh, rather than design, and we should be able to apply design to them in a way that that breaks a whole bunch of expectations that we get simply because we keep seeing it. The key thing about a city is is the ease of getting from point A to point B. And if you can't do that, why the hell have a city? Get the get the transportation infrastructure right. And and I'm not the only one with good ideas, but you know, I have a few in the book. As I as I pointed out, you know, people people in the in the 30s that were writing the science fiction had better ideas. It's just nobody has, has gone to the point of actually doing them. If you're gonna design a city of the future and 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 you, you know you're you're some billionaire who who just wants to to have a go at it. Look at the transportation infrastructure first, and then do everything else based on what you've come up with. Something for Trey and Frostpro to take note of when it comes to designing the future transportation infrastructure. That's exactly right. That's exactly right. I love it. You want to talk a bit more about space travel that we haven't talked that much about yet. Well, I would just point out one thing. Within a couple of months, before the end of this year, you're going to have the 50th anniversary of the very last footprint on the moon. Okay? That was 50 years ago. We haven't gone back. And one of the things I, I, I want to talk about just a little bit, a whole bunch of people are saying we should redo our entire energy infrastructure. And they're, they're worried about things like climate change and, and pollution and who knows what else. But anyway, there, there's a whole bunch of people out there who are, who are very, very keen to just completely redo our energy infrastructure. And I would say to these people, look at the moon, because 50 years ago, we could do things like that. We could actually have rebuilt the energy infrastructure because we did that kind of thing. We built it in the first place, not even knowing, you know, how it was going to work. Nowadays, we can't, we've, we've, we NASA have spent as much money and as much time as it took us to go to the moon from a standing start to do it again and have not succeeded yet. Okay. Our, our crufty aging governance and societal structures are incapable of building things the way they did 50 years ago. And so don't think about trying to redo our energy infrastructure until you get a society that's actually able to build things like that. I want to move on to discuss culture. So culture is also potentially a big influence on sort of the way we do things, the way we don't do. What are the Eloi in your terminology and what role do they play in our contemporary culture? The Eloi were a, the remains of humanity in H.G. Uh, Wells's essentially seminal science fiction novel, the, the Time Machine. He imagined that for centuries and centuries or even millennia, that the, the human race is going to have lived in a civilized state where you didn't have to fight, you didn't have to toil. We had made machines and 
We had law laws of police, so basically everybody was safe all the time, and so there was no reason to have all of the uh, what he considered the manly characteristics. To to uh, um, life wasn't hard, and so people got soft. <laughs> and the Ilway were the result of this. They, they were they were essentially childlike descendants of of humanity, and so his time travel gets there, and and they're all like little kids. They're not only small and weak, but they are timid and stupid. Okay. So this is, this is what he imagines humanity becoming after having been coddled by its, its technology for, for all of these millennia or so forth. I looked at what's going on uh, in the stagnation and so forth. And I say, you know, one of the reasons that, that we're, we're getting this is because people are actually kind of following that that path. And the only thing that would have surprised H.G. Wells is that it only took one century for it to happen. I really don't know the extent to which, which this, as opposed to all the other forces that we've been talking about, are the the reason. I, I think it's just like I said, but to, to begin with, a perfect storm. That There's a whole bunch of things that came together, but that's one of them. That uh, people said we don't we don't really have to go out and, and conquer nature. We don't have to really go out and conquer distance. We don't have to really go out and conquer space. We don't need energy because we're all getting timider and stupider and uh, weaker and so forth. And that's the way we are, and that's the way we like it. Well, all I can say is I don't like it. To contrast that, or to poke a bit of hole in that. So at one point in the book, you have this quote which I love. Unlike a century ago, today, for everyone who's working on advancing technological progress, there's someone else who fervently believes that they are saving the planet by stopping. By stopping, right? Yeah. So, so isn't it so? Isn't it that people are just yeah. passionate just about, you know, stopping progress, or not just enjoying the fruits of it? Mm. Yes. Well, this is why I I proceeded to coin the phrase the Eloi agonistes that. Although in, in, in Wells's book, he has the, the human race um, declining um, on an evolutionary timescale. And so the people actually are smaller and weaker and stupider and so forth. What's happened in, in, in our case is that that's happened essentially in the culture and not, not physically. So we're actually basically the same kind of people that we were a hundred years ago, as far as individuals are concerned, it's just that the, the culture kind of wants to be like the Eloy. And so the individual has the same drives to, well, if, if nothing else, be useful because we actually each have uh, somewhere and to some extent of a, an instinct to want to be a useful part of our communities and our societies and, and our culture. And so if that's all you have, one of the easiest ways to think that you're doing good is to look around and see something that seems dangerous to you. And the easiest thing to think is dangerous is something that's powerful. And you have to realize that, that this is how evolution works. Nobody does this for a reason there is a process of variation that is random. So anything 
that is going to fit into your psychological niche to be useful, somebody's going to do it simply because variation is random. And in the absence of a selection mechanism, which the, the hard life of our ancestors provided, in the absence of that, all this variation is just going to get out there and go. And so that's what I thought. You can, you can come up with all sorts of other theories, but this was, this was my thought of, you know, okay, we have all this variation going on and nothing is selected. And so we have all these people who think that by stopping nuclear power, for example, they're saving the world because it's big and powerful and they don't understand it. And, they, and in particular, they didn't realize it's really the safest way of generating power. But in fact, there's a huge number of people that, uh, especially after you were talking about Nader, um, after the Nader groups in the 1960s had their go at nuclear power for a decade, two-thirds of the, of the people in the United States believed that a nuclear power plant could go off like a nuclear bomb, which is, of course, idiotic. But the, the fact is that, that that's the belief that had been spread to the point that this became one of the, one of the key reasons for the backlash against nuclear power. So um, it's, a, it's a process of variation unconstrained by selection. I think that is the, the, the dynamic that gave rise to the Eloy agonistes. I think uh, that's exactly right. I love the way you phrased that. Um, and I think there's another perspective on it just to describe the, the same phenomenon, perhaps through a different lens, which is kind of encapsulated by a heuristic that I don't even remember where this came from, but I, because I've heard it so many times, but that politics is downstream of culture effectively. And when you combine that with the idea that memes, not like the little funny images you see on the internet per se, but like memes as a cultural idea that are transmitted from person to person akin to a virus almost, and viruses can be good or bad depending on exactly what they're doing. Uh, that the culture has effectively been overtaken entirely by a bunch of terrible memes uh, about all sorts of things relating to technological progress. So the, effectively what has happened is we moved from biological evolution to cultural evolution, cultural evolution being driven, as you just described, by a random variation, which is creating these memes. And the problem is the bad memes are winning and not the good memes. Uh, and I, I view your book actually as a good effort in spreading better memes effectively because I am a massive techno-optimist, like of the probably the most radical degree of techno-optimist that exists. And even I did not have a full conception of the actual potential impact on my day-to-day -day lived experience of increasing uh, human, humanity's energy production capacity and of the potential concrete realistic impacts and use cases of nanotechnology. And of the, the, even the quality of life benefits of having flying cars, as basic as that may sound. Um, so I think a, a big part of this is also podcasts like this and other things like this, where we can spread better memes effectively to counteract the negative memes that have created a, this terrifying safetyism egregore uh, throughout society that is uh, holding back technological progress. I would point out, by the way, that, that Dawkins originated the term meme in... Uh, reference to gene, which is it's not a, so much a virus, but it's just the the elements of your uh, genome. And so the memes, the good memes, are generally the ones that are what make up what you know and what you've learned in your life and and so forth. And they are your inheritance of culture, the same way your genes are your inheritance of biological evolution. No, I I agree. You're ex you're exactly right. But but I found that always a bit of an, a point that I was 
keeping pondering that even if we're able to unleash a new wave of technological progress, removing some of the obstacles we're facing, get more of that technological progress that we're discussing, what if we are becoming even more like the Eloy, right? And that's kind of actually the countervailing force, right? I mean, someone else in well, layman's I, I have, terms would... Yes. Someone with well, layman's I, I terms a, would describe what we were just saying, some, something like, well, people just have too much time. And with the additional free time, you know, they start complaining about things, politicking, virtually signaling with each other. So with yeah. more progress, maybe we have more behavior like that, right? Well, yes and no. I, I, if we don't try to do any more than we're doing now, if, if we're just trying to have a good life and, and, and all sit around uh, by the pool and, and, and drink Mai Tais, um, uh, you're right. It, that's, that's actually probably we'd be better off if, if we went back to having to, you know, uh, chop the wood by hand and draw water. Um, but we have another option. And the other option is we can take our existing great powers and the new greater powers that, that lie within our grasp and do greater things. Okay. We, we have to raise our sights. We have to go out and pick on somebody our own size. We ha we can't just sit around enjoying ourselves and 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 so forth. So so as a concomitant with the, the ability to do more stuff, we have to look for greater goals. The one I obviously point out a lot is 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 settling the the rest of the solar system. But there are many other things that that we could be doing. And I think one of the the key tasks of the human race now is to work out just what those things are. But you have a very, very strong point there. And, but I think I have an answer to it. It's like, you know, we, we, we can't just sit here and do the same old stuff. We, we're much more capable now and we're gonna be even more so in the future. We gotta find really great things to do with the, the powers. That is an extremely good answer, I agree. And yeah, I agree as well. I think to even put the answer a little bit differently as well, I think it also comes down to like a lot of people because uh, the median kind of standard of living, uh, at least in developed countries for now, has reached a point of, of contentment for many people. They uh, and, and again, culture has done a, a, a terrible job of reinforcing this meme, but it's effectively like, oh, it's gotten as good as it's going to get. And maybe we'll make a one percent marginal improvement year over year, but maybe not even that. And we'll just we should be content with what we have now. People genuinely and I find this out even talking to fellow techno optimist friends do not understand the massive level of quality of life improvement of the prosperity and well-being of actual people that is still left on the table that we can still reach for. Like if you even just to take the nanotech example, which is probably one of my favorites, like if you gain the ability to arbitrarily arrange atoms effectively, which is the end state of, of nanotechnology in my mind, then you've reached what, what I like to refer to as post-scarcity. You've literally reached the almost th something like the Star Trek uh, that Star Trek materializer thing where they type a command into a, a keyboard and out pops whatever it is that they wanted uh, of any object of any kind, uh, which sounds like utter science fiction, but there are things like that or of that variety, not saying that specifically, that are possible uh, if only we were to continue uh, pushing as hard for technological progress and working toward it as a species as we have previously. And then the other issue I think uh, that we haven't raised yet, but I think is an important one, is that human beings like kind of because of our inherent tribal nature from from living on the savannah for hundreds of thousands of years, uh, think of things in in uh, neutral sum or negative sum ways. So they think of things like, oh, well, if I get richer, then someone else must necessarily and concomitantly get poorer, which is not at all the case. Like in a free market economy in, in the world that we live in, everything is a positive sum game. You can create value for someone else uh, and they can exchange value for you. 
And you both end up better off from that value for value exchange. You extrapolate that to innovation uh, and the world is massively positive sum. So I think just reinforcing these, these two narratives that like, A, there's so much prosperity left on the table. There's so much prosperity left on the table and it is attainable. And B, uh, the world is positive sum. The world is not negative sum. We can build the utopian future that we were promised in sci-fi. It is there and it is achievable if only we would put our collective will toward doing it. Absolutely. To pick on a, another little example that is probably coming fairly soon, um, robots. I don't know if you ever go out in your um, garage on, on Saturday and have some project that you want to do, but you know, I, I, I like doing that and you know, going around and, and building stuff and, and that sort of thing. Um, suppose I wanted to, instead of building, you know, a new cabinet in the kitchen for my wife, I wanted to build a flying car. Well, it would be nice if I had, you know, a hundred, uh, really intelligent, hardworking servants to help me with it. And if that were the case, I could actually probably build a flying car. Thing is robots that's coming. I mean, that's, that's right there. That's one of the things on the table that, like you were talking about, don't, you know, become the, 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 the peasant in society with a, with a fancy suit and a big house, you become the Lord because you have all these people working for you who, who A, are, are good at what they do and B, do anything you say because they're your robots. That's a giant step up for the average person to be somebody like that and, 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 and have that kind of capability, uh, assuming you're the kind of person who wants to accomplish things. I want to raise one last point. And then we unfortunately have to close it, but I could go on for hours. <laughs> but that is yeah. one thing that I think can really help us get out of this situation and improve in so many areas is decentralizing innovation, right? So a lot of innovation has traditionally been very centralized in sort of a couple of concentrations of capital and talent around the world. First and foremost, Silicon Valley. Right. But now with some of the technologies that we have with the internet, we have potentially the ability to do it in other places. Right. So we don't need as much concentration of capital and talent as was required before to make these quantum leaps in technology. What, what do you think about that? Uh, if you agree, how, what can we do it? What can we add to that thesis? If you disagree, how would that alternative, um, paths to creating more progress look like? Well, I think, especially in the, in the informational world, that that's already pretty much happened. I, I think that the ability of people to uh, work together. In fact, when I was at Nanorex, we had a geographically distributed, we have guys in California, we had guys in Michigan, we had guys in Pennsylvania, um, and we were just developing a piece of software. So you could do that. We didn't quite know how to do it, uh, as well as we could have done, but you know, that, that is now something that, that people know how to do fairly well. And the distributed work that, that became the norm during COVID was actually um, an impetus for that even happening more than, than it would have. So I think in the, in the informational world, that's clearly the case. In the physical world, it sometimes is necessary for people to get together and work on the same machine. Now, if you have robots, it turns out that you can do a lot of that in a distributed way because I can dial into your robot and work on your, your thing, or you can dial into my robot and work on my thing. That's actually a piece of the development of robotics that, that 
people don't realize is is right there on the on the uh, development path, and it's going to be a useful um, and therefore money making, but also be enable the next level of robotics, the same way that people doing a lot of reading and writing has enabled the uh, the language models that are the the leading AI technologies. Because if if we have a whole bunch of robots and people dial into them and use them to do things, you're going to have the same body of experience that's necessary for, to teach these neural nets to do the kind of things that that our body of text has has allowed them to do in the in the um, in the talkie world. So, um, the I think that's probably what's really next in, in robotics is is uh, is, is teleoperated machines and people doing essentially zooming into a robot and, 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 and doing some job and, and ultimately the robots learning from all that and, and being able to do it themselves. Great. Josh, you are a huge inspiration to us in Prospera. Uh, in a way, many of the things that you describe in your book is we I frequently had the feeling when I was reading a book, yes, that's why we're doing this. That's why we need this. We're doing gene therapy here. We're doing having a Bitcoin education center. We're doing decentralized open banking. We want to do a biotech hardware lab here, fractionalized real estate, property rights in 3D on the blockchain. Trey could probably also go on and on. I'm just really glad we got to have this conversation. Uh, it was fantastic. Like I said, I'm a, I'm a huge fan and I, uh, I hope others uh, use this as a gateway uh, to your work as well. You've been, uh, again, a massive inspiration for us. And And like I said, you're the, the book, the, the ideology the book has inspired in me and many others is effectively, there's a future we could have had that isn't here and we need to build it full stop, uh, which I think we need to encourage in more people. So you're, you're spreading the most beneficial meme that I think is, is out there and I'm going to continue to, uh, to do it with you as well. So we, we really appreciate it. Yeah, thank you. Thank you very much. Um, you're going to make my head swell so much my earphones will fit, but, um, you know, That's all I should say. <laughs> yes, let this be a rallying cry for bringing back the future and using a new wave of technological progress and realize all of the things that we've just been talking about in Prospera, hopefully in more charter cities and startup cities in the future that can be the connective tissue to bring these innovations into the real world and fundamentally change the world of Athens. Josh, it was an epic pleasure to have you on the show. Thank you so much for coming on. Oh, and, and not only that, but let me thank you for being the guys who are trying to make it happen. I, I, I think you are wonderful, and, and I just wish there were a lot more people like you. I really well, appreciate you, it. Thank you, for being on the forefront of that movement. Thanks for coming yeah. on the show as well. And thanks to the both of you. I really appreciate it. It's time to get your checking account to zero with free checking from PenFed. That's zero ATM fees, zero balance requirements, and zero time spent waiting for your paycheck to direct deposit because you can receive it up to two days early. Open your account with just $25 and see how big zero can be. Apply online today at penfed.org slash free checking. Early direct deposit eligibility may vary between pay periods and timing of payers' funding. To receive any advertised product, you must become a member of PenFed, insured by NCUA. PenFed's got